working through the Gospel of Mark this year, hearing stories of the amazing, miraculous things that Jesus does. We've seen Jesus teach with authority that people had never seen before. We'd seen Jesus heal people who could find healing nowhere else. We saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. Last week, we read a story about how Jesus walked on water, not so that he could come save the day, but so that he could pass us by, so that we would know that he knows the way, even when we don't, so that we could walk confidently into any unknown future, knowing that Jesus knows the way. We're going to read two more miracle stories this morning. They're both healing miracles, but the focus isn't so much on the fact that Jesus can heal. Mark already established that chapters earlier. The focus is on the response of the people that Jesus that come to Jesus seeking his healing. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 7. The text is in your bulletin. It's going to be up on the screen as well. And this is verse 24. Chapter 7 verse 24. From there, that is from Gennesaret. This is the place where he and his disciples ended up after he went walking on the water. From there, he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. And this is actually a pretty long journey from the Sea of Galilee to the region of Tyre. Going to Tyre means going north and west, at least a day's journey to the Mediterranean coast. It's a definite change of place. And the most important thing to note about going to Tyre is that it means going to a Gentile region. There certainly would have been other Jewish people in the region of Tyre, but it was a Gentile region. And that fact is setting up the central tension in this story. The tension between Gentiles and Jews. You see, Jews, like Jesus, saw themselves as set apart from the Gentiles. The Jews were God's chosen ones, Gentiles, that is, anyone who wasn't Jewish. Well, they weren't God's chosen ones. There was an in and an out, and it was very clearly defined. Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. This is important, I think. Jesus' power and presence cannot be hidden even when he wants to hide them. Jesus didn't want anyone to notice that he was there. He wanted to hide himself, and yet his power and his presence could not be hidden. Verse 25, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. His power and his presence can't be hidden, and she came and bowed down at his feet. She came to Jesus, who we know can heal with a need for healing. It seems pretty straightforward how this story is going to develop. But then Mark reminds us of the central tension built into the story. Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, that is, on the outside of God's favor, not one of God's chosen, and she was of Syrophoenician origin. This means that she was from a particularly prosperous region that had additional tensions with Galilean Jews. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And despite the tensions in the story, our minds are primed to think, of course, of course, our kind and gentle Jesus will ignore those tensions and heal this woman's daughter. After all, he's already healed a Gentile a couple of chapters earlier in Mark's gospel. This shouldn't be a problem. But as one author puts it, Jesus apparently is caught with his compassion down 
Listen to what he says. Verse 27, he said to her, let the children be fed first, the Jews, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And this is just as insulting as it sounds. And it's surprising to hear Jesus talk to someone like this. But he seems to be very clearly saying that his mission is for the Jews and the Jews alone. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She jumps into the metaphor, subtly shifts it to her advantage. You know, it turns out she's happy for the Jews to have come first, but she's not satisfied with being left out. She's got a a larger vision than that. She seems to understand that there's a wideness to God's mercy that includes even her. There's an effectiveness to Jesus' power that, that can't be contained. So much so that all she needs is whatever's left over. Crumbs falling to the floor. And Jesus immediately recognizes the God-given wisdom of her words. And he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. And the simplest reading of this story is that Jesus changed his mind. He initially was inclined to refuse her request. For the very simple reason that his mission was limited to the Jews. But her challenge causes him to reconsider. And he changes his mind. It's not a moment of weakness for Jesus. It's an understanding of the expansiveness of his power. No boundary, not even that stark division between Gentile and Jew, between in and out, between child and dog. No division can fence in the compassionate power of God. The story continues with Jesus traveling again. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So he's headed back to his home turf, the Galilee, but notice that he ends up in the region of the Decapolis. This is the Roman, the Gentile region near the Sea of Galilee. Again, the tension is front and center, the tension of religious, social, cultural, behavioral boundaries. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And we don't know for sure if this man's a Gentile, but we could assume that he is since he's living in a Gentile region, since it follows a story about another Gentile. The question is, what will happen? Has Jesus' encounter with this woman permanently opened him up to including Gentiles in his healing mission? Verse 33, It does. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, spat, and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And of course, the actual healing here can be understood figuratively as well. Be opened. By the power and presence of Jesus, who is God-made flesh, anything that's closed can be opened. And here's how the passage ends. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he's done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The more he ordered them to be silent, the more they proclaimed it. Not even Jesus himself is able to contain the good news that God's mercy and grace can reach everyone. 
our daughter has this little friend. They go to school together. Sometimes this friend will come over to our house to play. Her, her name's Caroline. She's got short red hair and she's about this tall. And Caroline, when she comes over to our house, she does this really funny thing. She walks around the house and closes every single door. Bathroom door, close it. Front room door, close it. James's door, close it. Sarah's door, close it. Cabinet door, close it. Hours later, I'll walk into our room and I'll think, why is our closet closed? Oh yeah, Caroline was here. It's funny, this little girl walking around, closing all the doors in our house, but it occurs to me that this might be something that's just built into us as humans. Wanting a door that we can close. It helps us know who's in and who's out. It helps us know how to say, this is right, that is wrong. It helps us be able to think, this must be how God intends it, and this is not what God intends. And it's funny that I'm always on the inside of whatever door I want to close. This is right. That is wrong, and it's not new. It's a pattern that's as old as humanity. It's exactly the tension we've been talking about between the Gentiles and the Jews. For the Jews, there very clearly was a door, and it was closed. You were on the inside, or you were on the outside. You were either a Jew and part of God's family, or you were a Gentile and not part of God's family. And Jesus is very well aware of this door. When he talks to the woman in our story, he says, I'm not going to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. There's a clear in and out. But this woman, this woman is confident that God's grace is for her too. So she pushes back, essentially saying, you know, that door might keep you in, but it doesn't have to keep me out. That door might keep you in God's family, but it doesn't have to keep me out of God's love. Later in the Bible story, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter, the one upon whom God has promised to build the church, the Apostle Peter has this vision where God shows him that everything he thought was unclean is actually okay. It's clean. In other words, the things that were outside, it's okay to bring them in. So Peter opens the door, and what he does is he walks out and thus begins the mission to the Gentiles, which, by the way, seeing as we are all Gentiles, is the only reason we are Christians today. It wasn't a weakening of the mission, it was an expanding of the mission field. Throughout its history, the church has reckoned with other closed doors that God had to show us how to open. For a good chunk of our history as Christians, God-loving, truth-seeking Christians firmly believed that God had opened the door between Gentile and Jew but nonetheless continued to live as if the door between white American and black American was closed and should be shut tight forever. That's interesting. People who looked like me believed that God had opened the door between Jew and Gentile to let us in, but not them. Where else do you think? Where else have we unwittingly built doors to create separation? Where else have we purposely built doors to create separation? What doors have we closed and intending to or not made it clear that you are in and you are out? 
Now, the truth is, doors are pretty useful. I don't want a house without doors. How else would we keep the AC in? How else would we keep the Meyerland feral cats out? What would Caroline do when she comes over? The challenge is, we humans don't always know which doors to open and which doors to close. Even when we try to be faithful and listen very closely for God's voice, we don't always know when to swing them wide and when to lock them tight. It's not because we're bad, it's because we're broken. And we're not always in sync with God. We think God meant this, but God meant that. We think the rule should be this, and God thinks the rule should be that. Now, at our house, I'm glad we've got doors, and we've got good ones. We've got wood doors that have glass panes. We've got fancy locks with codes on them. We've got sliding glass doors that are childproof. We've got great doors. We've even got a gate on our driveway. We are safe. We are kept in, and things we don't want are kept out. But when Hurricane Harvey hit... All those doors were locked up tight. And when the bayou broke over its banks and filled up our neighborhood, you know what those locked doors didn't stop? The water found its way in despite the doors. That's the way it is with the love and power of God. I can close whatever doors I want. It might keep me in, but it won't keep God out. People can close whatever doors they want, and it might keep me out, but it won't keep God in. God's love and power will find a way to reach every single person, no matter what doors stand in the way. In our story, there was no stronger door than the one between Gentile and Jew. But that didn't stop God from healing the little girl. The man's ears were closed up tight. His mouth was frozen shut. All Jesus had to say was, be opened. And the good news began to pour out of him and his friends. And, you know, there's this passage at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It's describing the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city come down. This is God's vision for where everything is headed, for what it will all look like in the end. It's describing the heavenly city, pearly gates, streets of gold. And then it says this, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord is its light, and the lamp is its lamb, or is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And this is the kicker its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. It's the heavenly city. The gates are always open. God's vision for all humanity is a gates is, is a city with gates that never close. Now, I don't know how God plans to change me or purify me or sanctify me before I walk through those gates. I know it'll happen. I just don't know how. I don't know how God plans to change you or purify you or sanctify you before you walk through those gates, but you can count on it. God opening things that are closed, freeing things that are frozen. I don't know how God plans to change anyone. Gentile or Jew, man or woman, young or old, gay or straight, before they walk through those gates. But the expansive power of God won't be stopped. The expansive power of God can't be stopped until it finds its way to each and every one. So like the woman in the story, be confident that God's grace is for you 
and for all who call upon his name. And like the man in the story, be opened so that your life might share the good news of God's mercy and grace. Let's pray.